you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. the liberal soul. My name is Luke Mason. For today's episode, I was thinking a little bit about some of my own intellectual meditations over the last decade or so. I think I mentioned in one of the earlier episodes that I originally spent a lot of time reading philosophy, and then more recently in my life, I've spent a lot of time reading psychology. And I've been really fascinated by moral psychology and what gets people's hackles up in a moral sense. It's so funny how (laughs) when you kind of start out an exploratory podcast like this, just random books that you've read at some point in your life come into mind of like, oh, that made a lot of sense when I read it. I should should think of that. I should do an episode on that one. So today's episode, I'm going to be doing on the 2012 book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, and it was written by the social scientist and moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt is, I think, a lecturer at the New York University Stern School of Business. I just looked that up on Wikipedia. And as well, I think he used to be a professor at the University of Virginia. I'm pretty sure because that's what he talks a lot about in the book is working there or being there. Anyway, Jonathan Haidt, is he's written his other books include the happiness hypothesis and then his most recent book which he wrote with greg lukianoff it's called the coddling of the american mind i think that was originally in an article in the atlantic that got expanded enough to be into a book and jonathan Haidt, i really appreciate him i think he started the heterodox academy and so over the last five years or so, he's really been championing the idea of heterodox thinking, of open debate, of openness, of diverse viewpoints, diverse political viewpoints, diverse perspectives on philosophy and everything. But this book is a little bit before all that, although I'm sure, like, obviously he would have had all the same values. The Righteous Mind, coming out 2012, almost 10 years ago now. This is all a book about um, moral psychology, why people believe what they believe and why they care about their ethics in the way that they do. And this book was really impactful to me because it's a book that was able to kind of spell out why people kind of have pre-reflected reactions to the world in the ways that they do. And it's kind of just like how the world makes itself known to you is often how you respond to it. What what guides your uh, lens of how you view 
specific things, especially in the political arena. And so there's three parts to this book, and not all of them are specific, I think, things that I want to really go into today. But the thing that I really knew that I wanted to discuss in terms of like the Liberal Soul podcast is uh, um, going over his, well, I don't know if it's his actually, but they talk about in the book, the moral foundations theory and the different pillars of moral foundations that they have found that are kind of cross-cultural and that some people have them more or less. And in fact, in the kind of modern North American sense, liberals and conservatives, uh, how it's understood politically now, how they actually have different moral pillars that strike them as important and relevant. And so I'll get into that later. But I just, I was like, wow, like, like that's, you can really see how if a person cares about that particular moral foundation, they would respond in the way that doesn't really make sense to me because I don't care about that thing. So I have a few thoughts on those. And I think because those are the most interesting to chew over philosophically for me. But before we get there, I just want to take a moment to thank anyone who listens to this podcast. Uh, it's been a big passion of mine over the last couple of years, podcasting, and getting to start this one has been a lot of um, a lot of work, but a lot of fun, and something I really hope to do for a long time. If you enjoy this podcast, you can subscribe on any podcasting app of your choice. If you do uh, use Apple Podcasts, it would be really awesome if you could leave a rating and a review because that's a good way to help the show grow and have new people find it. I have a Facebook group, The Liberal Soul, you can find, as well as if you want to send me an email, it's theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. And I do have a Twitter, but I don't use it very much. So if uh, you want notifications when new episodes come out, you can subscribe, and then you'll know, and that'll be fun. So I encourage you to do that if you haven't yet. So the first part of this book is called the, the part one section is called intuitions come first strategic reasoning second and the metaphor that height uses for this is that we actually you can think of our kind of reactions to things in the world as a rider riding an elephant in that the elephant mostly chooses where we go and you can just kind of guide where the elephant is going along the way and one of the ways that he demonstrates this metaphor is this concept he's, um, he uses called moral dumbfounding. And uh, he and associates of him would give thought experiments to subjects, to, to interview subjects, to see what they thought were wrong about things. And uh, a lot of times people couldn't think about why they were wrong. They just felt wrong. They felt disgusting. So I think there's one story. The story is um, these two siblings a male and female sibling, they want to have sex together and they use contraception and they don't tell anyone. And so there's no pregnancy, there's no STIs, no one gets hurt and they enjoy the experience. And then they ask the subjects, is this wrong? And people have this kind of innate disgust for this. And then they bring up reasons like, oh, well, it could be incest. Yeah, but we don't have to worry about that because they use contraception. So there's no pregnancies. Um, it could harm relations with other family members. Well, they didn't tell anyone, so there's no way to know. And so there's kind of like you peel back the layers of why people think a scenario like this is wrong, and they can't give you a reason. They just say it f seems wrong. And the I think the other example was a guy, <laughs> one of Jonathan Haidt's great lines is, it's hard to gross out a liberal or a libertarian. Keep in mind, these are just thought experiments. 
This guy buys a chicken, goes home, has sex with it, and then kills it and eats it. Then they say, well, did the, did this guy do anything wrong? And then people have this kind of visceral disgust for the situation. It's like, well, the, the chicken was his. He bought it. Um, he cooked it after and used it. So none of it went to waste. So what was wrong? And <laughs> the just this is what I'm not an expert on this stuff, but it was kind of examples like this that led to the moral dumbfounding theory. It's like people just saying they something's wrong and they can't explain why. And I think these were kind of the things that start first were getting interesting in moral psychology of what all this does. And it because it kind of leads to the idea that one of the things he says in the book is that judgment and justification are separate processes. We have a visceral, intuitive, emotional reaction to something. And then we, mo- for the most part, post hoc justify why we have the judgment towards something. And I think this is ascertainable in our day-to-day lives where I used to work with kids for a long time and Sometimes a kid would just present themselves in a way that I found quite annoying or untakeable. It'd have to be a lot of cognitive work to not let that initial intuitive reaction in a negative sense override my faculties of running a good program or, or making sure that that kid as well as the other kids had a good program. And so you can really... I, it made a lot of intuitive sense to me, this hijacking of where we judge, we have, we make kind of moral judgments and then justify them after the fact in that the moral judgment is the um, elephant going wherever it wants to. And then our rider kind of justifying why we took that path afterwards in, in the metaphor that Haidt uses, that our brains react so fast to this information. Um, he even explains a particular <laughs> experiment where they would ask people to make moral judgments on the questionnaire, and they found that there was a a statistically significant change on whether or not they had put fart spray beside the people. So just even being in a negative smelling environment can affect the way you feel because a lot of our evolved moral emotions are, you know, so the hypothesis goes, a lot of our moral emotions are a result of our evolution. And so a lot of moral emotions come from disgust because we had to be disgusted by many things that would have made us sick and foul smelling things make us sick or, or you know, are uh, warning signs of the danger of we could be sick from this thing. And so it was just funny how they found like you could make some you, making a place smell worse actually makes people more judgmental in a moral sense, which is not something you'd like immediately think. But like once I think about it, it's like, well, yeah, that does make a little bit more sense because you're you're negatively primed for the scenario viscerally. And I think because a lot of moral emotions are visceral emotions, I can see why those would follow. Again, I want to point out I'm not an ex I'm not a moral psychologist. I'm not an expert. I haven't actually done. I've just read the book a couple times. If I say anything in this episode that you find particularly interesting, I recommend you get the book, The Righteous Mind, because um, he goes through all of his data, and obviously it's an ac- it's a it's a pop academic book, so it's got it's full of all the notes and references in it. And then they talk about evidence from Paul Bloom and others that I can't remember their names about how even babies make moral judgments. So these are things that are very deeply wired into our DNA in that I think the experiments are there are some babies who will look more favorably on a puppet who helps another puppet up a hill and less favorably on a puppet who impedes the other the, the first puppets going up the mountain or the hill or whatever the puppet show is. I'm not exactly sure how because I didn't read the note in the book about how that they know that they can say that, but they have different um, 
ways of measuring reaction time and and reactions, I guess, of the babies. So it's just an interesting thing that babies even can make moral judgments, it would appear. Okay, well, this seems defeatist in that if we're always just going to be a slave to our moral and intuitive emotions and feelings about anything in the world, uh, homelessness or tax policies or immigration or even more kind of like social issues like gay marriage, if these things are hijackable or, or not even hijackable, just like we're, we're kind of prone to our initial reactions and then we justify it afterwards, is there any hope? And the point Hyde makes is the elephant will listen to the rider if it is not hostile. There are ways that we can actually remind people to be honest and try to reach objectivity, and it involves transparency. It involves having to justify our notions of right or wrong or true or untrue or what we think about something to an audience. And there's a passage in the book that really makes this point well, so I'm going to read it out loud to give you the full flavor. This is a couple paragraphs. This is Height uh, reflecting on a different scientist's research on this area and his findings, what the findings are and what they are important. So here's Height. In Tetlock's research, subjects are asked to solve problems and make decisions. For example, they're given information about a legal case and then asked to infer guilt or innocence. Some subjects are told that they'll have to explain their decision to someone else. Other subjects know that they won't be held accountable by anyone. Tetlock found that when left to their own devices, people show the usual catalog of errors, laziness and reliance on gut feelings that has been documented in so much decision-making research. But when people know in advance that they'll have to explain themselves, they think more systematically and self-critically. They are less likely to jump to premature conclusions and more likely to revise their beliefs in response to evidence. That might be good news for rationalists. Maybe we can think carefully whenever we believe it matters? Not quite. Tetlock found two very different kinds of careful reasoning. Exploratory thought is an even-handed consideration of alternative points of views. Confirmatory thought is a one-sided attempt to rationalize a particular point of view. Accountability increases exploratory thought only when three th conditions apply. One, decision-makers learn before forming any opinion that they will be accountable to an audience. Two, the audience's views are unknown. And three, they believe the audience is well-informed and interested in accuracy. When all three conditions apply, people do their darndest to figure out the truth, because that's what the audience wants to hear. But the rest of the time, which is almost all of the time, accountability pressures simply increase confirmatory thought. People are trying harder to look right rather than to be right. And when I read that line, I immediately go back to my second episode with my cousin David on John Stuart Mill's On Liberty and how the only way to get exploratory thought is to have an audience that is interested in the truth or accuracy, maybe is a better way to put it, and haven't made up their minds yet. And this sounds exactly to me like teaching, and it sounds exactly like education. And I remember when I first started watching the debates with Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and the others, I was that third party in the audience paying attention to the points being made and really digesting them and thinking about them deeply. And I just was so kind of I guess vindicated isn't the right word because I wasn't like hung out to dry on this for any reason. But it's fun when I see this consilience from moral psychology in a philosophy document that I 
value highly in a different realm where we aren't actually going to get people aren't incentivized to be right rather than look right unless there is a kind of grindstone of an audience that they have to go put their thoughts out in front of and be open to defending in an open forum. And so uh, a lot of the tenor of the book is height arguing from a more kind of Durkheimian, Emil Durkheim, socio- one of the first sociologists, about how we need a lot of social pressures uh, because it's not easy to depend on individual people's ability to try and intentionally work on exploratory thought versus confirmatory thought. Now, one of the things is a goal of mine in the liberal soul is attempting to be exploratory versus confirmatory. So in a sense, I guess, by putting my thoughts out there into the world, there's a version of that, although it's like, it's, it's kind of secondhand because you're listening to this at a different time when I record it. And so I might not think the exact same thing when you hear it, but you know, that's uh, neither here nor there. Once you know that you need these conditions, it's a lot easier to meet those conditions. It's a lot easier to be willing to put your thoughts, because this is something I've always felt. I've always felt that your convictions, they need to be able to handle the, the best arguments against them to be considered vibrant and vital. And I've always wanted, I've always been of that disposition. And so it's really fun for me to read a scholarly work saying that not only is that like a lofty goal, it's actually really the only way we can kind of come out to more accuracy and truth without like self-deception and self-confirmation and confirmation bias. It's actually what we need Um, because obviously there's been a lot of experiments on how people use high IQs to buttress their own side more. So higher IQ doesn't necessarily solve this problem. It just makes you better at your justifications. So that'll lead us into part two of the book and the main part I wanted to talk about for this podcast. So part two is there's more to morality than harm and fairness. And so a lot of research and a lot of institutional research and in the university institutions over the last number of years have skewed pretty hard in a liberal or more left-wing sense. So a lot of the studies about moral psychology, I think Haidt is arguing before recently have been very centered on a very non-representative demographic of human society and human nature, which are the people who are called, the acronym is WEIRD, Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. <laughs> the point Hyde makes is the WEIRD are the least representative if you want to make generalizations about human nature. Because people in WEIRD countries, that's again, Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic, see things as separate objects, not relationships. I think the example in the book Height uses is if you ask people in Western countries what they are or what how they see themselves, it's like, I, I think it's like, I am a basketball player. I like jazz. Things that they do that are specific and kind of like an object of what they do. Whereas in, in non-Western countries, a lot of students will say, I am a son or a daughter. I am a teammate of this group. I'm on this team. It's very more more relationship-based versus kind of autonomy based. Now obviously there's cultural factors for that in the different countries, but the point is that weird we it's easy to you know, you can't see the water that you're swimming in. Height's point is that in the weird countries, we actually only emphasize two of the five pillars in moral foundation theory 
and a little bit a third that might make it six pillars that came out later. But anyway, so I know I've, I've talked a little bit around this. So in moral foundation theory, and the, I don't know if this is actually Jonathan Haidt himself came up with moral foundation theory. I can't remember it said in the book. Anyway, it's something he talks about a lot. And moral foundation theory is basically like, what are kind of, if you can boil it down to the axioms, what are things that get people morally indignant or morally appeased in the world? And there's these six different principles. I'll say six, because one of them grew out of a, of one of the five, but it kind of has its own thing. So one of them is the care-harm principle, uh, care being on the positive side, do care and then don't do harm. The fairness principle, so treat people fairly and don't cheat them. Height's point is that those two are actually the two that are kind of taken for granted by both well, liberals care about them and so do conservatives. But then there are three other pillars that are very important to people around the world and generally more important to conservative types that liberals don't really think about very much and it doesn't really matter it doesn't seem to matter as much to them but in their research globally and worldwide this is what these scientists found out and height writes about so another one of the pillars is loyalty slash treachery and that loyalty to nation to god to your team is often a very important moral foundation for conservatives and not as much for liberals. Uh, another one is the authority subversion moral foundation. Uh, now the caveat there is that it only works if the authority is legitimate based on wisdom and competence. But I think liberals tend to be, and, and I think, again, I, like I talked about in one of the Thousand Small Sanity episodes, this is a very temperamental thing, I think. How the world strikes you, how your moral psychology even um, assesses these things before you can justify them or process them even and then the fifth one is sanctity degradation so conservatives are uh, have can think of things have that have sanctity that are that are kind of um blessed or pure or shouldn't be defiled and then the sixth one is liberty slash oppression i just wanted to think about like how for okay for the first thing first of all reading this book and thinking about how there because I resonated very much with that. Like, yeah, I care very much about harm and care, and I care very much about fairness and cheating. But loyalty, authority, sanctity, they don't actually strike me as very valenced in how I would fill out a moral questionnaire, I suppose, which I guess is what happened in for height and, and in these um, experiments that they ran or, or uh, test subjects that they did with people. One of the things I should point out is height originally got interested in a lot of this work because he was so sick of seeing, because <laughs> he, he was a liberal, he was so sick of getting the, seeing the Democrats getting their ass kicked. And this was back in 2004, John Kerry getting his ass kicked by George W. Bush. And it was because he started to notice that George Bush was playing to all five moral foundations in his speeches. And John Kerry was only uh, appealing to the two, care, harm, and fairness slash cheating. So the claim that height makes is that for conservatives, all of those, all six moral foundations are shared more or less equally. So all six of those things matter to conservatives in a kind of equal level. Maybe maybe some of them skewed a little bit, whereas for more liberal types, they actually really only vitiate to the care harm principle, the fairness cheating principle, and then also the liberty oppression principle, which 
brings in an interesting like subcategory of like libertarians are a little bit different than liberals here. I won't go off track there because I'm not an expert on any of that kind of stuff, even though it'd be fun to talk about. So in the book, it shows how one of the reasons it's so hard for people who are politically conservative and people who are politically liberal to kind of understand each other is that they don't share a same moral foundation valence. So even if I have, let's say, 90% interest in care harm and 90% interest in fairness and cheating, if my interest in loyalty slash treachery is at a 10% and somebody else's for them, it's an 80%, it's going to be really hard to understand their prerogatives and their desires, uh, which can manifest at the level of policy or political argument. And so even learning about this moral foundation theory was really useful to me to be like, oh, yeah, there are going to be when again, you read a lot of examples in the book, like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff here that I can understand why it would be important to a person, even if it's not important to me right now. And I think, like, the thing is, I don't, zero percent understand why people consider loyalty or authority or sanctity important it's just it's always kind of low to me it's because often those things get kind of blown out of proportion obviously if you can do the the most (laughs) classic cliche liberal thing and live and let live for the most part we can take care of fairness and we can increase fairness and decrease harm in the world without having to necessarily give up sanctity or loyalty or authority slash subversion. But I think one of the challenges in life is that a lot of times these moral foundations can be in tension with each other. It's not clear cut that it's like, okay, this in this scenario, it's all about fairness. And then in this scenario, it's all about loyalty. I was just thinking about an example. Like I like to play sports and I play team sports and I grew up playing team sports, but I find myself kind of pre-reflectively again. I I wish maybe there's a better term for like, before I can really process and justify what I'm doing, I'm reacting in a certain way. And I'm pretty vigilant on calling my own. So if I'm playing ultimate Frisbee, I'm I'm pretty vigilant in calling my own sides fouls or being out of bounds or saying we messed up almost more than the other teams. I mean, this is kind of a silly example, but you could say there's a tension there between fairness and loyalty. If I was more loyal to my team, I might try and get away with a bit more, might try and sneak out some catches that maybe were out of bounds, but it's too close to call. So we'll give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we won't, we'll sacrifice fairness of the game for loyalty or, or, or maybe a better example is like when I played hockey, you're supposed to kind of rally to your teammate's defense even if your teammate does something really terrible i remember actually two years ago there was a hot there was a stanley cup it was the western conference final and it was the san jose sharks and the um st louis blues and the san jose sharks had scored in overtime but it was a clearly a hand pass the player hit it with his hand to a teammate which you're not allowed to do if that happens the whistle blows but none of the on-ice officials saw this and so San Jose obviously celebrated. They win the game because when you score in overtime in the playoffs, the game ends and that team wins. They're celebrating. Even though I was cheering for the Sharks, so in a sense I was loyal to that team, I still didn't feel right. I was like, well, that's not fair. They didn't win the game fairly. And so 
maybe it's like, I guess when I have a tension between the two, I pick fairness over loyalty. Um, or I guess it would be kind of like the same with authority is that, yeah, it's good to listen to authority figures if they know what they're doing, but it can so easily decay into kind of petty authority. And then again, you have a tension between authority and fairness or authority and harm. And sanctity is probably the hardest one for me to, well, okay, this is a deeper one, but I, I'm sure there are conservatives in the world who deeply believe in the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman. And that is a moral foundation for them. And that moral foundation is in tension with the fairness of treating people equally and like everyone having the right to marry whoever they want. Because that was, I remember that being a big argument in the gay marriage debate was like, well, it's, it's not just about equal rights. It's about the sanctity of the marriage contract. And I guess, you know, you can make the glib, well, if you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married. At one level, that makes sense and is funny. But at another level, if there is this moral foundation of like people genuinely believe in the sanctity of that, I think we're in the difficult situation of a collision of moral foundations. And, and so even though I guess why I'm not a conservative is that when push comes to shove, I pick fairness and care slash not harm over the other ones when they're in tension with each other in situations where they can all kind of thrive and they can manifest their, themselves in the world without too much encroachment on the other moral foundations. I mean, that would be the world I would want to pursue and try to figure out how to best happen. But I think the ugly truth here is that a lot of times these moral foundations are in tension with each other. And then how do you pick? And then, of course, a lot of them can be in tension with liberty slash oppression. And we're living in an era where, uh, I mean, this is a different podcast, but the kind of like saturation of the of the meaning of words like liberty and oppression make it hard to know exactly what would count as them or not. But that's a whole different podcast. So, yeah, I just... I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, but I, I want to... I bring up moral foundation theory as something to meditate on for the liberal soul as just the world can <laughs> manifest itself so differently to people based on their moral psychologies. And that's really useful to know. And so now, I mean, when I learn about moral foundation theory and I think about the ramifications of all the foundations and how they might manifest in any different scheme of life, it does kind of reinforce my, I mean, here's why I'm not a conservative because loyalty slash treachery. And I like, look, you don't just go betray your friends for no reason. But if a friend does something horrible to someone else, I don't think loyalty trumps fairness. Like that's... <laughs> Loyal, because loyalty can be twisted so deeply. And like, look, so can fairness. In fairness, <laughs> it can be twisted too. But my moral psychology strikes me as it being not as vitiating to me. Authority subversion or sanctity degra degradation, those are just not as... It'd be interesting to talk to a conservative about these things because I would, it would be more, it'd be fun to bring out examples of them to see what, what our, play, play with our intuitions a bit on them in the moral sphere. But I am pretty grateful that I read this book because of that and because it really helped my thinking of, wow, yeah, like people's, 
moral psychologies can be very different from mine. And that's why they react differently to similar phenomena in the world. And it's not just because they're crazy. It's because <laughs> an element of reality, such as their moral intuitions, is a little different than mine. And that's really useful to think about instead, because it allows you to have a conversation versus a branding of a just a bad person or something. Why good people are divided by politics and religion. And so Height ends up with part three that the title is Morality Binds and Blinds. We are conditional hive creatures and we can easily <laughs> have herd mentality. Uh, he gives the example of drunk college football fans and how that creates a community for people. And that a little later he talks about a religious community is an important pillar to think about when we're talking about religion because religion is cooperation without kinship. And if you would listen, if you listen to my episode with Cole Kander called Losing Our Religion, we talk about growing up in the church and then not feeling that way anymore and not thinking that way anymore. I lay out a kind of four elements of religion, four components that make up religion. And two of them I think are worth discarding and two of them are worth keeping and thinking about more. And one of them that I think is worth keeping about thinking is the social ethic or the community that comes with religion, like church and having lunch together every Sunday after a service and, you know, the church baseball or the picnic or something like that, like ways of community building and building trust. And like, this is a sociological thing, but like how much trust is built non uh, between people in a religion so that they can work together with people who aren't their kin. And so there's like an adaptive, a potentially adaptive feature of religion, which is the, the pillar of um, community and uh, like a social ethic of the way to treat other people, which is, I think, part of what makes Jesus's moral philosophy so interesting and really like, I mean, I, I've told many friends, I think Jesus is one of the most interesting moral philosophers that's ever lived. Uh Assuming he did. <laughs> yeah. There's my uh, there's my disregard for sanctity setting in there. So it doesn't just have to be religion, but I think religion has captivated people the most existentially, which is why it works so, it's worked so well. Now, again, the bitter pill here is that for the most part, to make that work, people legitimately have to believe in the religious doctrines and things they're saying. It's hard to get people, maybe adults once they settle into a life, but kids are always curious and say kids are natural born empiricists. They want to know what's out there in the world. And for the most part, not every case, but like a vast majority of kids believe because they think it's true because the adults in their life tell them that it's true. And so that's how people are raised. So I think maybe in a different episode, I'll... I'll go through a little more thoroughly those four things about religion, the two not worth keeping, which I think are its empirical slash truth claims and its metaphysics, because I don't think there are metaphysics, and the ones that are worth keeping, which is the psychology of the stories and the social ethic and community that comes from that kind of thing, and how we can like use that energy into into other forms of life, like, you know, I play on an ultimate Frisbee team, and that can be a pretty good community too. So, in summation... I recommend this book, The Righteous Mind, because it's the one of the first books, and it's certainly the one that came to mind when I thought about this for this podcast of, this is the first kind of psychology book I ever read about morality. I've read tons of philosophy books about morality, but this is the first one about moral psychology that introduced me very deeply and thoroughly and academically to the idea that one of the reasons I don't agree with people is not because we have a simply a different opinion about something, but the moral world itself impresses itself 
in different emphasis on me than it might on somebody else. And so I might have a total blind spot to something in, say, like uh, a sanctity pillar because I'm just not wired that way to care about that moral foundation. And somebody else is wired that way to care about that moral foundation. And since even conservatives, (laughs) I say that tongue in cheek because it's obviously true, have moral consciences, it's worth knowing that about moral foundations and that and then you can still disagree but at least you know you know to say the foundation of why someone disagrees with something that you're talking about and i would also say that i think the hardest cases in these are when these moral foundations are in tension with each other and maybe there's a sometimes maybe it's just a zero-sum game and you have to pick some pick one uh the art of negotiation maybe is figuring out how to make it non-zero-sum between different moral intuitions about the world and how we can do that peacefully and through conversation which again goes back to on liberty and freedom of opinion to say whatever you want by john stuart mill anyway thank you for listening if you like the show to subscribe on the podcast app of your choice facebook group you can send an email at the liberal soul 87 at gmail.com and uh word of mouth if you like this podcast uh tell any of your friends who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish in it. Once again, thanks for listening. You found the liberal soul.